0: Well thank you for the warm welcome. Try not to blow out your speakers there. It's a pleasure to be here, I think that's customary to say, but it truly is a pleasure to be here this morning. Uh, The Jones family has been a great blessing to my family and I definitely have a heart for grace-advanced churches and church plants and church revitalizations and, and those who are willing to leave larger churches or even come to growing young churches to serve, as that's what's going on where I live in Cannon Beach. But that's enough about me. For you, if you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. We're going to look at a text this morning in Philippians chapter 1. And I know your pastor has been taking you through a text, well really through the book of Ephesians. And there are some parallels between our text and the book of Ephesians. Uh, The first parallel would be that Paul wrote the letter to the Philippian church about the same time that he wrote the book of Ephesians. So both books written while Paul was imprisoned in Rome or under house arrest, maybe is a better term. Another parallel would be that you in Ephesians chapter 6 right now are considering the topic of spiritual warfare. And Paul writes about that very thing in Philippians, spiritual warfare. And that's what we're going to look at in our text this morning. We'll begin by reading a few verses from Philippians chapter 1. So Philippians chapter 1 verse 27. I'm reading and teaching from the New American Standard Translation. Philippians 127, Paul says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel in No way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you and that too from God, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. This is the text we will study this morning. I want to begin with a little bit of background on this Philippian church in the city of Philippi. Understanding Paul's audience will be very important for understanding Paul's meaning of the text here and and how his original audience would have received it. We want to put ourselves in their shoes, as it were. And And so we'll do a little bit of a Bible study almost to start, a little bit of a history lesson to start, and I'll even start by asking you a, a question. The question is, what do the Apostle Paul, Caesar Augustus, and Cleopatra all have in common? And interestingly enough, the answer is the city of Philippi. Now, The city of Philippi is in modern day Greece. It's located about 10 miles north of the Aegean Sea. So just 10 miles to the south of the city is the beautiful ocean, and just off to the west of the city, just off to the west is a large fertile plain, and just off to the east and to the north are mountains that are filled with gold. And this city was originally founded in 360 BC, 360 BC, it wasn't named Philippi originally, it became the city of Philippi as it were in 356 because a gentleman by the name of Philip of Macedon came in he was the king of Macedonia and he came in and he took the city and so in 356 he renamed it to the city of Philippi now he had a very famous son you might know his son's name his son's name was Alexander he was tutored by another very famous individual Aristotle now his son Alexander was born the same year 356 BC that Philip took the city So 356, Philip takes the city, his son is born, and then 20 years later, Philip is assassinated at his daughter's wedding. Alexander is 20 years old, he's been tutored for about 16 years by Aristotle, and he takes over the empire. You might know him as Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great. So Alexander the Great takes over. And and nothing significant happens then for about 200 years. And in 168 B.C., we'll start tying this together as we go, 168 B.C., Rome is now the power of the world, the superpower, as it were. And so Macedonia, the region of Macedonia, and the city of Philippi are now Roman. They're Roman territories, as it were. And then there's a couple big events that you would want to know about. In the year... 42 B.C. is the Battle of Philippi. The Battle of Philippi takes place on that large plain that's just off to the side of the city. And it's really, at this point in time, it's the largest collection of Roman soldiers in a battle in world history. And what happens is there's two opposing forces, both both Roman, if if you will. Cassius and Brutus are on one side. You might know those names. Cassius and Brutus have just assassinated Julius Caesar. They've assassinated Julius Caesar and they have some Roman legions under them. And they've come to the city of Philippi and they want to rule the Roman Empire. And there's another party that you may know of, Octavian and Mark Antony. Now Octavian was supposed to be Julius Caesar's heir. He was supposed to sit on the throne, as it were, and If Cassius and Brutus would have their way, that wouldn't happen. And so Octavian is teamed up with another gentleman, Mark Antony. Mark Antony was a famous general, a very successful general. And so all of these men, Cassius, Brutus, Mark Antony, and Octavian have these Roman legions under them. And they come to the city of Philippi and there is a battle there, a very, very large battle. And Mark Antony and Octavian win. They win the battle. And interestingly enough, Mark Antony and Octavian, they are uh, allies, as it were, but they're really not friends. And to try and fix that problem, uh, Antony marries Octavian's sister, Octavius. That didn't go so well, though, because Antony has a long-term affair with a woman you know of, Cleopatra. So he has a long-term affair with Cleopatra, uh, four children with her. And needless to say, after about 10 years, in the year 31 BC, Antony and Octavian then have a battle. And we would have expected that Antony would would have been the winner. He was the better general, but he was actually the loser. And so in 31 BC, Octavian becomes the singular head of Rome. And it really transfers at that point from being a republic, the Roman Republic, to the Roman Empire. Now you might know Octavian under a different name. Octavian took another name after this victory in 31 B.C., Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus is the one who we read about in the Gospels when Jesus was born. Caesar Augustus declared that there would be a census taken. And so Jesus' mother and father had to travel. And that was because of Caesar Augustus. So at the birth of Jesus, Caesar Augustus has been ruling. Since 31 B.C., he's been having a very successful reign. Now what's significant for us to know is that in 31 B.C., something very interesting happens in Philippi. When Octavian takes control of the Roman Empire, as it were, he grants to this city something very special. This city becomes a Roman colony. We don't really have this in our culture. But what happens is... This is now like a miniature city of Rome. Everybody there has Roman citizenship. All the rights, all the privileges. Now their official language is Latin, even though it's a Greek area, they speak in Latin. And so they have Roman customs, they have Roman citizenship. And this city is filled with military people from the Roman army, victors the victorious people retire there and they're granted citizenship. They're granted a tax-exempt status. And so this becomes a city where you have all these retired soldiers and their families, and they are fiercely loyal to Caesar. They're very proud of their Roman citizenship. It's a big, big deal. If you know your New Testament, you know having Roman citizenship was a big deal in the Roman Empire. And so this is a fiercely loyal and very, very proud city full of military victors. And so when Paul rolls into town, the city of Philippi, about A.D. 50, he rolls into town about A.D. 50, it's now been 80 years since Octavian won his battle. It's been about 80 years. And to put that in context, that's about how long it's been since World War II. It's been about 80 years since World War II. And so the city really hasn't changed much. Now, 80 years back then was very different than 80 years now. The world's changed radically in 80 years in our era. But back then, nothing changed in 80 years. Probably not even hairstyles or clothing styles. And so very much would be the same when Paul comes into town. Let's take a moment and look at Acts chapter 16. And let's just see how it came about that Paul plants this church. This Church is introduced to us in Acts 16. It's Paul's second missionary journey. And in Acts chapter 16, we find in verse 12, they arrive in Philippi. From there, they arrive to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia. It's still called the district of Macedonia. And you might note it's a colony, it says. I have an italics, a Roman colony. It's a colony and it says we were staying in the city for some days we have no long we have no idea how long they were there we don't know they were there for some period of time there was no synagogue here this is a this is a greek city roman citizenship and there's no jews here and we know that because we find here in verse 13 on the sabbath they went outside the gate to the riverside where they were supposing there would be a place of prayer there was no synagogue you had to have 10 jewish men to plant a synagogue and there weren't even that here so they go out out of the city down by the river thinking there'd be a place of prayer and the first convert we have Lydia she's converted her household is converted and they end up staying there in verse 15 it tells us and there's demonic activity in this city some demonic oppression as it were and it's interesting the way this manifests in verse 16, it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl, having a spirit of divination, met us. She was bringing her master's much profit by fortune telling. And following after Paul and us, so Luke's there, she kept crying out saying, these men are bond servants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Everything's true. This demon speaking the truth, but we don't need help from the demons. We don't need help from the unregenerate, unbelieving world, whether it be physical or spiritual, to further the gospel. And so Paul sees in verse 18, Paul gets very annoyed, it says. He was greatly annoyed. He turned to the spirit and said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And that creates an uproar. Uh, what we see here then, her masters, verse 19, saw their hope of profit was gone, so they seized Paul Silas, they dragged him into the marketplace, they brought them to the chief magistrates, verse 20, and note what they said. These men are, are throwing our city into confusion being Jews, and they're proclaiming customs, which it's not lawful for us to accept or observe being Romans. They were proud of being Romans. And here's the thing, when Paul came into town and started preaching, everybody knew what he was preaching. He was either famous or he was infamous. And they could say, listen, they're proclaiming customs that are not lawful for us. And how much truth there was to that is a topic for another time. But the result then is that Paul and Silas are beaten and thrown into prison. You can see verse 23, when they struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison commanded the jailer to guard them secretly so Paul's beaten illegally and the jailer ends up being converted there's a there's a earthquake you might know this story and God causes this earthquake nobody escapes and so the jailer comes rushing in he finds Paul and Silas verse 29 he called for the lights rushed in trembling with fear he fell down before Paul and Silas and he brought them out he said sirs what must I do to be saved And we find in verse 34, he brought them into his house, set food before them, and he rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. So now we have this interesting local church here. We have Lydia and her household. We've got a Philippian jailer, his household, and we don't know who else. But the fact of the matter is this church, in a very real sense, is birthed out of persecution, It's because of persecution and illegal beatings, as it were, violence, that this church really is born. And that's the founding. And when we get to our text, if you want to go back to Philippians, it's been a few years now since Paul has been to this city. And Paul receives a visitor while he's in Rome. Look with me at chapter 4. When Paul is in Rome under house arrest, In chapter 4, he tells us a little bit of background info. He says in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. And not that I speak from want, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Paul didn't have any needs, but he was thankful that these people wanted to serve him. This church had supported him financially for a very long time. As soon as he left Philippi, they started sending money ahead and supporting him. And he makes that point uh, in the book of uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. You can look at that at your own time. And then we get a little more detail. Look at verse 18. Paul says, I've received everything in full and I have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you sent. So Epaphroditus he leaves from the city of Philippi with this care package, a gift as it were. And he comes and he finds Paul in Rome and he delivers this package. And turn back to Philippians chapter 2, a little bit more info. Paul tells us in Philippians 2 verse 25, he says, I thought it necessary to send to you, Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who's also your messenger and minister to my need. And so Paul is sending back Epaphroditus. Why? Verse 26, because he was longing for you all and he was distressed because you heard he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death. But God had mercy on him, not only on him, but also on me. And so Paul is sending Epaphroditus back. They had heard that as Epaphroditus left, he got sick either on the way or when he got to Rome and he was at the point of death. And so Epaphroditus is going to bring this letter back to the city of Philippi to the local church. And you can picture it, it's the Lord's Day morning. And Epaphroditus comes in and he unrolls the scroll and he's going to read what Paul has written. And what we see then from the text is there's a couple issues that Epaphroditus has updated Paul about. Paul's been updated. There's a couple issues in Philippi. One of them is some disunity in the local church. And the other issue is persecution. Persecution then is the, the hot water. You may have heard the teabag illustration. Hot water is poured onto a teabag and what's on the inside comes out. And Sometimes during times of persecution, people's sin starts coming out. And that's exactly what was happening in Philippi. Uh, take a look with me at uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Verse 2, we'll just go right to there. Look what Paul says. I urge Yodia and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Now can you imagine on the Lord's Day, Epaphroditus rolls back into town. He's been gone. Everybody's ready to see him. And he unrolls the scroll. And he starts to read. And then two ladies are named by name. Can you feel the the blood rush to your cheeks and the embarrassment and the anxiety? I can tell you, in many churches nowadays, if something like this happened, the ladies would get up and walk out and never come back. So many churches are so full of prideful people they can't receive reproof, they can't receive correction, especially if it's public. You know, and Paul could have he could have just delivered the message privately, right? Epaphroditus, go and talk to these two ladies. Tell them I know what's going on. Tell them they need to. They need to straighten it out. Stop worrying about their own preferences. No, Paul names them by name. There's a place for that. And so that's part of the issue. But the issue I want to look at this morning is persecution. Look with me at chapter 1 where we read earlier in verse 28. Paul says, "...in no way alarmed by your opponents." And that's what this really comes down to. The Philippians had opponents. And, they were suffering. They were suffering as it says in verse 30, they're experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me. They knew Paul had been beaten. and Now the same thing was upon their doorstep. I don't know whether or not these men and women in this local church were being beaten, but they were surely dealing with opponents And it was very similar, at a minimum, to what Paul went through. In every city Paul went to, he was run out. He was either stoned, beaten, or he had escaped before something like that happened. This church is suffering. They're suffering. And so Paul tells them in verse 27, it's really the main point of the, the letter here. Verse 27, he says, only, now you may not know much about the Greek language, and that's okay, but in Greek, You don't need to put words in a certain order because each word has its own ending that tells you what it does in the sentence. So for example, in English, if we want to say Oliver hit Chris with the ball, the words have to be in that order. But in Greek, you could say ball Chris hit Oliver. And you'd be able to tell by the ending of the word who did what, even if the words are flip-flopped. But in English, we put everything in order. And what that allows you to do in Greek is to put things of emphasis at the beginning of the sentence. If you want to emphasize something, you put it at the beginning of the sentence so that it's the first thing the audience hears. And sometimes we talk that way. You might might hear somebody say, you know, I ran into so-and-so, and the very first thing out of their mouth was, the first thing you say is what the point of emphasis is. And Paul right here says, only, only, there's one thing, one thing, what is that one thing? He says, "Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel." There's five words here in English that translate one Greek word. Conduct yourselves in a manner. Conduct yourselves in a manner. And it's in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now, Paul's letters that he writes from his Roman imprisonment, he often uses this language. Being worthy of the Gospel, being worthy is, has the idea then of, of, of balancing out the scale. You've been granted something incredible. Now balance it out by responding in love. And Paul writes this a lot. If you're in Philippians, just turn a couple pages forward to Colossians chapter 1. And look at verse 10 of chapter 1 so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. There it is, a similar language. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And then turn back to the book before Philippians, the one you've been in for a while, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. And so both in Ephesians and in Colossians, Paul says, I want you to walk. He uses the Greek word peripateo to walk about, to walk around. It means to live a, a certain way. But in this text, for whatever reason, even though he writes from Rome just like these other two letters here, he chooses a different word. He doesn't choose the word peripateo. He chooses a very different word. And listen carefully, poly or Paula tuomai. tuomai. You can hear in the beginning of it, Paula. It's the Greek word polis, which is the word for a city state. A city state in in this world, the cities were their own states. They were pretty much sovereign. And so it was called a city state. It was a, a polis. And we use this word still today. A metropolis, Indianapolis, Minneapolis. We still use this word. And so this is a word, polituomai, this verb. It means to live as a citizen. And that would be very significant to this Roman audience. Remember, they have Roman citizenship. They understand citizenship better than anybody. And Paul is saying to them, live as a citizen. Be a good citizen. But, he's doing more than just that. He's building a case about citizenship. He's building this case that he's going to bring to a head in chapter 3. Turn over and over to chapter 3 with me. Chapter 3, verse 20. Paul says, for our citizenship. It's not the exact same word, polituomai. It's the noun, polituma. Our citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven. Now we know Paul was a Roman citizen and the Philippians were Roman citizens. So he's not saying, renounce your earthly citizenship. But he's pointing something out. I want to read some some comments from a gentleman named David Garland. David Garland is a, a commentator. He writes commentaries on the Bible. He was a, a president or not president. He was the interim president at Baylor University for a while. He served at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary for about twenty years. Before that, he was a veteran of the United States Navy, military man. And here's what he writes about this word, Potuuma citizenship. He says it's found only here in the New Testament. It's more accurately translated commonwealth or state. Listen to what he says. Often a polituma was used to designate a colony of foreigners or relocated veterans whose purpose was to secure the conquered country for the conquering country by spreading abroad that country's Ways of doing things, its customs, its culture, and its laws. So do you understand what he's saying? When Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven, he's saying, listen, we come from a conquering land, and we've been placed here in this land to take over. We are here to bring about the laws and the customs of the land we represent. We represent a foreign king. And for us, as Christians, we represent the King of kings, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is our job, wherever we are, to take over that land by the proclamation of the Gospel. That's Paul's point here. And so when he says, back in chapter 1, verse 27, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the Gospel, he's saying to them, live as ambassadors. Live as ambassadors. Live as emissaries. You may have citizenship here, and in fact you do, but that's not really that relevant. You have a foreign citizenship. You represent a foreign king. You live for him and his purposes and his ways, and you represent him. That's Paul's point. Live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And then he's going to explain what he means. He really hasn't explained yet what he means by living in a manner worthy of First, he says, listen, this is the only thing I want from you, so that whether I come and see you, he's hoping to get out of imprisonment, but he might not, whether I come and see you, you can see it there in verse 27, or I remain absent, I will hear of you. And then what he does is he gives us three verbs, three verbs that tell us what it means to live as a worthy citizen, to live as an ambassador, to live as a diplomat, a foreign diplomat. Here's our three verbs. You can see them in the text, verse 27. The first one is standing. I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Here's our second verb, striving together. Standing firm, striving together. And note the third one, it's in verse 28. It's negative stated. In no way alarmed. There's our three verbs. Verbs. Two actions and a disposition, as it were. And Paul says, there's one thing. Only one thing. I want you to conduct yourselves worthy. As citizens, be worthy. So, let's look at this first verb. What does it mean to be standing firm? Well, you've seen a similar English word back in Ephesians, as Pastor Oliver has been teaching. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm. But it's not the same Greek word. This particular Greek word in Philippians is very different. It's used in Galatians. So if you want to turn a couple pages back, back into the book of Galatians, chapter 5. Here, Paul uses this word in 5.1. And listen to what he says. And I think this will help us get the idea Paul says it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. He's saying, listen, don't give up any ground. You've been set free. And there's these Judaizers who are trying to re-enslave you. Don't give them any ground. Stand firm. Don't back up. Don't retreat. That's exactly what this word means. When we go back into Philippians, and he says, stand firm firm. I will hear that you're standing firm. This is a word that was often used in a military context. It means you plant your flag and you hold the line and you die on that hill if you need to. No retreat, no surrender under any circumstance. Hold the line. No retreat under any circumstance. You die here if you have to. You must hold this line. That's how it was used in the first century. Hold the line. And we'll expand upon that in a little bit. But let's look at the next verb. You're to be standing firm, and then he says, "With one mind striving together." Let me give you that Greek word, you might be able to pick out our English word. It's a, it's a compound word, soon athleo. Soon it means "with, with," and then athleo. Where we get our word athletics. Athletics in English. In Greek, that word athleo meant to contend in a battle or in a contest, to struggle. And so he's saying, soon athleo, to contend together, to battle together, to struggle together. You're fighting as a team, you're striving as a team. You can picture a, a, a line of soldiers, arm to arm, shield to shield, holding the line. If if standing firm is the defensive posture, then here, striving together is the offensive posture. First off, don't give up an inch. Don't back up. Don't retreat. Don't surrender. But move the line forward. Keep taking ground. Keep advancing. March on. And in in what context are we talking about here? Well, you see it there in the text. Verse 27, I want to hear that you're standing firm in one spirit and one mind, striving together. And note what he says. He doesn't say to right the wrongs in the world. Stand firm, strive together to right the wrongs in the world. Stand firm, strive together fighting poverty. Stand firm, strive together to kill homelessness. Stand firm, strive together to fight against the opiate crisis or gun violence. Or establishing soup kitchens. Or establishing equitable health care. its not what he says, is it? He says in the text, there's one thing I want you to be doing. Whether I come and visit you or whether I never come and I only hear about you. The one thing I want to hear is that you're holding the line and you're advancing the line for what purpose? It's right there in the text. For the faith of the Gospel. The content of God's revelation of Jesus Christ and all that it entails. This is our mission. Whether you're a church in Washington or a church in Oregon or a church in the Ukraine, you have one mission and it is the Great Commission. And wherever you are planted, your job is to hold the line and advance the line. And you're to do that as a team. You're to do that as a military unit together. He says striving together. Look what he says. One spirit, one mind. Those are the most intimate parts, as it were. With one mind, with one spirit, striving together, unified. All on the same page. I don't care about your personal preferences, your own likes, your own desires. We have a job to do. And we put all those things aside for the job, for the mission. And the Christian... Life, as it were, is a mission, and it's a defensive mission, and it is an offensive mission. You you probably know this, you're in Philippians, turn over to 1 Peter for just a moment, to this text that you very well might know, 1 Peter chapter 3, the the, the verse that we use for apologetics, 1 Peter 3.15, Peter says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. The idea here Christ is Lord in your heart, and you're ready to make a defense. When people want to come and ask you about the Christian faith, you are ready to defend it. You're going to do it gently, you're going to do it graciously, but you've got to be ready to defend the faith. Hold the line. But that's not all we do. Turn over with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. You see, we are commanded to go on the offensive. We are commanded to go on the offensive. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Look what Paul says in verse 3. He says, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war. That's not what he says, is it? We do not war according to the flesh. We do, in fact, war. Absolutely. But the weapons of our warfare, verse 4, are not of the flesh, but they're divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. This is the sword of the Spirit from Ephesians 6, the word of God. Look what we're supposed to do here. You see it right there in verse 5. We are destroying. We are destroyers. We are commanded to be destroyers, not of people. Of fortresses, people's fortresses, you see it right there in the text, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. You see, we are called to war, not only do we hold the line, we advance the line by going forward and destroying every argument raised up against the biblical truths that we hold so dear and that have been fought for for the past 2000 years. We destroy people's fortresses because the, the, the unbelieving world erects these fortresses to hide behind, to justify their unbelief and their sin and their rebellion. And if that fortress isn't destroyed and if they're not brought to Christ, that fortress will become their tomb. They will die in it. And then after they die in that worldview, they will wake up to find themselves in front of Christ at the great white throne of judgment and be condemned to hell forever and ever in eternal conscious torment. So because we love people, we go out and we destroy their arguments. Not the people, but we destroy the arguments. So, very simple stuff, really. Hold the line and advance the line. And this is a team event. One mind, one spirit. This is all hands on deck, as it were. Not optional, not when it's convenient. This is the one thing the Philippians are supposed to be doing. The one thing. He's just restating Jesus' own words. Look with me at Matthew chapter 28. You likely know this text, the Great Commission. We don't know exactly when they started calling it that. That's not an inspired title. It's just a summary of the content. Matthew 28, Jesus has been resurrected. He hasn't yet ascended. And he says in verse 18, Jesus came up and spoke to them. There's these disciples. And he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. One way to summarize that is, do what I'm telling you to do. I have all the authority. Do what I'm telling you to do. What does he tell them to do? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. How do you do that? Well, by baptizing them and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. All Christians are to be involved in the process of making disciples and building up disciples. We make disciples through the proclamation of the gospel. And then once goats are converted into sheep and they come into the sheepfold, we feed them. And we're all responsible to be doing that. As a matter of fact, I can make it explicit here. Every single Christian will give an account to God for their participation in evangelism and discipleship. And I'm not exaggerating. Turn with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at Paul's words here. I don't want you to think I'm just trying to hype you up or, or scare you. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And be prepared to do a little hard examination here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 9, Paul says, therefore, we also have as our ambition, speaking as a Christian, you start to ask yourself if this is true of you. We have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, home is with the Lord, absent is still here on earth. Whether we're with the Lord or whether we're here on earth, we have as our ambition, what is it, it's right there in the text, to be pleasing to him. What do you mean, Paul? Verse 10, for Sometimes because, because what? Because we must, not they must, we must, we must all, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. Every single Christian is going to stand before the Bema seat of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're going to give an account for how you've spent what God has given you. Your time. Every resource that you have. Your intellect. Your abilities. Your money. All of it. He's given it all to you for the purpose of making disciples. And you're going to stand before him, as Paul says, we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, this is the victors standing, as it were. This isn't the great white throne where the unbelievers go, but this is where the believers go. And it's time to give an account for how we've used what God has given us. And yes, Scripture's clear. Jesus Christ will wipe away every tear. Do you know why that will be? Because when it's time to give an account, there's going to be tears. There's going to be tears when you finally come to the realization that eternity has begun. And you've been given all this time. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, week after week, and year after year. You've been given all this intellect. All this opportunity. And the time to use it for Christ will then be over. And you will see how much of it is burned up and wasted. Instead of converted into glorious, Glorious rewards that you carry into eternity. Crowns to cast before the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. We will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And so look at verse 11. Therefore, based on that, what does Paul say? Based on that, knowing the fear of the Lord, we revere Him, but we also fear the Lord, don't we? We understand God's wrath because it was poured out on His Son. Knowing the fear of the Lord, what do we do? We persuade men. Is that true of you? Knowing that you're going to stand before Christ and knowing the fear of the Lord, do you persuade men and obviously women and children? We persuade men. Consider some additional things. Paul says here, verse 14, For the love of Christ controls us. Some translations, compels us. Is Christ's love for you so great in your awareness and your comprehension that it controls everything you do? Does it drive you? His love for you? Do you know this love of Christ that drove Paul? Look what he says as we continues on. Verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors. We are ambassadors. We represent the King of Kings. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We are the ambassadors, and we go into town and we get somewhere where we've got an audience and we declare boldly and clearly the King, the King of kings, the Lord of heaven and earth has decreed destruction on you and your people and your city. There is no escape. And there is no hope except for one particular way. He, this gracious king who has decreed destruction, has offered terms of surrender. It's unconditional surrender. It is complete surrender. It is total surrender. You must repent. You must repent of your unbelief and your sin. And if you will repent this gracious King, guess what He will do? Not only will He spare you from destruction, He will adopt you. He will make you one of His children. You were who an enemy, alienated in your mind, hostile to God, living indifferently to Him. He will adopt you make you one of His children. Not only that, He will take all of your sin and He will lay it on His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And He will pour out all of His wrath for your sin On His Son so that you don't have to bear God's wrath. And then, then He will take the perfect righteousness of His Son and apply it to you. He will take the perfect righteousness that Jesus Christ earned through His perfect life. The perfect life you and I were supposed to live and didn't. He'll take that righteousness and apply it to you so that we can be His children. So that we can be His ambassadors. Those are the terms. Those are the conditions. Complete and total surrender. I don't know when the offer expires, but as ambassadors, we plead with you, be reconciled to God before it is too late. You will never ever in your entire life hear better terms and conditions than these. We're not here to negotiate. We're not here to deliberate or debate. These are the terms and conditions. We represent the King of Kings. What Paul says there in verse 21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. There's the gospel. He, that's God the Father, made him, that's the Son, who knew no sin to be sin. He's the sin sacrifice, he's the sin offering, so that we might become the righteousness of God. The very righteousness of God is what we get to be. It's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. And so, when Paul tells the Philippians, stand firm, hold the line, and strive together for the faith of the gospel, this is what he's talking about. Go and do the Great Commission, make disciples, and teach them to obey, because a time is coming soon when we are all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And look what he says after that in Philippians. You've turned away, turn back over to Philippians for just a moment. And see what Paul needs to say next. After telling them to hold the line. After telling them to move forward. He tells them what not to do. In no way alarmed by your opponents. In no way alarmed by your opponents. You see, when you do this, you will have opponents how do I know that because that's what Philippians 2 teaches uh, maybe but not really yes the Philippians were dealing with persecution because they were doing what they were supposed to be doing but did you know that persecution's promised in the Bible it's crystal clear promise turn over with me to John 15 we're just going to bounce around a little bit let you hear it from the Lord Jesus himself John 15 a text you probably know John 15, Jesus says, beginning in verse 18, If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Are you hated by the world? I'm not talking about because you're a jerk. Are you hated by the world because you're not one of them? Look what he says in the next verse. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, did they persecute Jesus? We might say, since they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Are you being persecuted? Are you being persecuted? I turn over another one of Paul's notes. 2 Timothy, his deathbed letter, as it were, to his young protege, Timothy. Look what Paul tells him in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Another text you might know, should know. 2 Timothy 3 12. Indeed, all, all of who? All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. All. Now, I, in one sense, don't care whether, that, whether or not that's your own experience. Your experience doesn't determine reality. God's Word determines reality. Your experience tells us whether or not you're living up to God's Word. Listen, you can avoid persecution. You truly can. You can avoid persecution. All you've got to do is compromise. And there's a million and one ways to compromise. There's many ways to compromise. Well, you know, maybe God didn't make the earth in six 24-hour days 6,000 years ago. Maybe he didn't. You know, maybe it wasn't just Adam and Eve. Maybe it's Bob and Steve who can get married. Maybe there's more than two genders. Maybe you can choose your own gender, whatever you feel like. You know, maybe the Word of God isn't sufficient. Maybe we need to integrate unbelieving psychology. Maybe we need to integrate it. Maybe life doesn't begin in the womb. Maybe it doesn't begin in the womb. Maybe it's not actually killing a person. Maybe it's not actually murder. And maybe they're not murderers. All you have to do is compromise. And you won't suffer the persecution. But I can promise you, I can promise you what Spurgeon said is absolutely true. There will be no crown wearers in heaven who were not cross bearers here below. And that's Jesus' words, if anybody wants to follow me, he must pick up his cross and deny himself and follow me. Everybody wants a a crossless Christianity and a costless faith, but that's not biblical. You know, Philippians, go back over there, Philippians chapter one, we all we love it. We love the verse uh, Paul says in Philippians 121, "For for to me to live is Christ, really. Is it really Christ for you to live? Is your life all about Christ and making disciples as He commissioned? And to die is gain. Really? Is it? Is it really gain for you to die? Or do you live your life in such a way that you avoid death, particularly as it relates to persecution? That you don't say the things that might cause your death, that might cause you bodily harm, that might cause you alienation and isolation and persecution? Is it really death or gain to go and be with Christ for you? And is life life really about Christ and carrying out the Great Commission? We love the verse until it's time to apply it to ourselves, right? Paul tells them, in no way alarmed by your opponents. This word for alarmed, it's not the word for terrified or fearful. Uh, We know that about 365 times in the Bible it says, fear not. One for every day of the year. Repeatedly, fear not, fear not, fear not. That's not what Paul's talking about here. In no way alarmed by your opponents. This word for alarmed has the idea of being spooked. Being scared in a quick moment. It was used of Roman horses that would pull chariots and they'd be spooked and then stampede and run away. The idea being, you're in the middle of a battle, you're in the middle of a war. You're not compromising, you're defending the truth wherever it's being attacked. And you're advancing the gospel, you're going out and you're you're proclaiming repentance. And when the threats of violence come, when the rumors come, that they're going to show up at your home, at your church, at your job, that they're going to come for you, they're going to come for your kids, they're going to come for your 401k, whatever it is, they're coming. When you hear that, you're not spooked. You're not bothered. Whatever. To die is gain. Do not be spooked under any circumstance. But what about if, Paul says, in no way? He could have just said, not alarmed. But he knows. He knows how we respond. Well, what about in no way? Yeah, but what about if (laughs) in no way In no way alarmed. So the question then is, but why? You know, just being, you know, like Jesus won't cause us to be persecuted, right? You know, soft hands, hair model Jesus, gentle, lowly Jesus, right? Just being like that won't cause us to be persecuted. No, they killed Jesus, they murdered him. And he said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And let's consider the message we're supposed to be proclaiming because I think there's a lot of of lack of clarity. What we need to be proclaiming is repent. We need to be proclaiming repent. Let me just show that to you. Let me take you just a couple verses. I want you to see the continuity of this message. Go with me to Matthew's Gospel for a moment. Matthew chapter 3. We're just going to turn through a few places quickly and see this pattern Matthew chapter 3, we start with John the Baptist, and look what he says in chapter 3, verse 2. John the Baptist, he was in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent! First words out of his mouth. Repent! Well, maybe that's just John, he's an Old Testament preacher. Let's look at Jesus then. Go with me to Mark, chapter 1. What does Jesus preach? Mark, chapter 1, verse 15. We start in 14, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. Huh, I wonder what that looked like. And saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Okay, maybe that's just Jesus. Let's look at Luke chapter 24. What did Jesus tell his followers to do? Luke 24, Jesus has been resurrected at this point. He's got disciples in front of him. And what does he say the message is to be? 24, Luke 24, 46. He said to them, thus it's written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed. Everything's right there. Repentance. Repentance from what? From sins. That means you're going to have to define what sin is. And you're going to have to define, look at this, why do you need forgiveness What happens if you don't get forgiveness? Judgment. Right? It's all there. Sins, forgiveness, repentance. This is our message. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, Keep turning from Luke over into Acts. You can go, I don't have time to cover them all. Look at Peter's first and second sermons in the beginning, but go to Acts 17. We, We actually have a really cool example of one of Paul's sermons. In Acts 17, he's at Mars Hill. And Paul, he makes this case for who God is. These are, these are Greeks, as it were, at Mars Hill in Athens. They're not Jews. They don't know of the one true God. And so he sets the stage for the one true God. And then he says in verse 30, his point. Acts 17.30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men that all people everywhere should Repent because He's fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness. You see that? Judgment, righteousness, repentance. That's the message. I don't have time if you go to Acts chapter 26, verse 20. Paul says that he proclaimed repentance as he summarizes his own ministry. Here's the question. If what Paul said here at Mars Hill, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, If this is what God demands, and it is, then how can you, as an ambassador, be faithful to God and not deliver the command? You can't. It's very simple. And if God commands that all people everywhere should repent, how can you be loving to your neighbor and not deliver the command? You can't. We can't. If this isn't our message, then we're unfaithful. It really is that simple. It really is that simple. So Paul's letter, his, his admonition to the Philippians, really is pretty simple. It's really pretty simple. Go about the Great Commission. Hold the line. Defend the faith. We've got 2,000 years of church history wrestling through all the different issues. And you know what? Maybe some of you here aren't equipped to defend the faith. And maybe some of you are not equipped to go out and do evangelism, whether it's one-on-one, whether it's on the street, whether it's passing out tracks, whether it's open air, whether it's at your workplace. Well, here's the thing. As Paul said to the Philippians, striving together, one mind, one spirit. Maybe, and this isn't going to be everybody, but maybe you're not equipped because you have a divided heart and you're too busy with the things of this world. You know, in any church... There's several groups of people. There are some people who've never really committed to a local church. They're doing their thing. Maybe they call it God's thing. But they're doing it their way on their time as is convenient for them. They've never really committed to a local church. But Paul makes it clear. Striving together. One mind, one spirit. This is a team event. If you're not committed to a local church, you need to be committed to a local church. You need to know who your commanding officer is. And your commanding officers, plural, need to know who they're responsible for. Because pastors will give an account to God for those in their care. Maybe there are some of you here today that are committed. You've made a formal commitment to this local church, but you don't really live up to it. Again, your hearts are divided. You're consumed with the things of this world. You're too busy Maybe you need to prune some things back. Maybe you need to cancel some things because you're not carrying out the Great Commission. You're not equipped to defend the faith. And you're not equipped to go out and advance the Gospel. And so you are the weakest link in the chain. I don't know. I don't know anybody here. And so it's, it's enjoyable for me to be able to say this because I'm not thinking of anybody. But I know that there's people in this room who meet these, these criteria. Some of you are overcommitted. Even though you committed to this church, you're overcommitted to other things. And you need to get back to the first principles. And some of you need to make a commitment to this church. And if you're not going to make a commitment to this church, go somewhere else. Go somewhere else. I don't say that with any animosity, but be a committed member of a local church. And if it's not this one, then be it somewhere else. But Paul calls us to strive together, one mind, one spirit. You might think you're a Navy SEAL. Oh, I can go do it on my own. Look, SEALs have SEAL teams, right? SEAL teams. So even the best of the best work as a team, a highly organized and practiced team. So my exhortation to you would be the same thing that Paul says. It would be the same thing that Paul says. Let's look back at our text one more time before I pray. In Philippians chapter 1. I don't know if I'll come back and see you again, Lord willing. I do hope I will come back and, and preach here at this church. But there's one thing that I want to hear. If I, if I hear from Oliver, if I hear from people that come and visit Cannon Beach from this area. I want to hear of one thing, just like the Apostle Paul. That you are, as a local church, with one mind and one spirit that you're holding the line. That you're standing firm. That you're not giving up an inch. That you're not compromising in any way. And not only that, that you're striving together. That you are synchronized. All hands on deck. Standing arm in arm, advancing the Gospel through the proclamation of the Gospel, declaring that God demands all people everywhere should repent. And that when the persecution comes, as it will, and I'll say hopefully already has, I hope you're already experiencing persecution. Because if you're not, there's a good possibility you're not living godly in Christ Jesus. Because Paul said all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So I hope it's already come. Not because I want to see you suffer, but I want to know that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. I want to hear. Whether I come and visit you, whether I just hear reports that you're standing together, that you're striving together, and that in no way Under any circumstance, no matter the cost, are you alarmed? Not at all, in any way. Because you know that soon you're going to stand before Jesus Christ. And the King of kings and the Lord of lords, our elder brother, the one who gave His very life for you, desires to reward you. He's given you time and energy and ability because He wants to reward you for using it faithfully. Not only saving us from our sins, crediting crediting us perfect righteousness, but actually giving us opportunity to earn eternal rewards. How loving, how gracious. How will that not drive you to want to serve Him with all that you have? Does the love of Christ compel you, control you? If it doesn't, in every church, there's always people who are false converts. There's always people who are visiting. If, if the love of Christ doesn't compel you and control you, come and talk with one of the pastors here. Come talk with me. We would love nothing more than to show you from the Word of God what Christ has done and who He is. In conclusion, let me just... I'm like the plane that keeps circling. I don't know what time the clock says. My sight's not good, so I can't see it. Let me just tell you about a text that bothers me. Matthew chapter seven: I love the Sermon on the Mount, as you likely do. Matthew chapter seven, verse 21. This is a very real text for me, and I hope it's real for you. Jesus says, "Not everyone who says to me, "Lord, Lord," will enter the kingdom of heaven." Do you understand what He's talking about here? You know who doesn't go to Jesus and say, "Lord, Lord." The Hindus don't. The Muslims don't, the Buddhists don't, The atheists don't. The agnostics don't, right? He's talking about people that are emphatic that Jesus Christ is their Lord. And he says, not everyone who's emphatic that I'm their Lord will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What's the will of the Father? That we go about the Great Commission. Look what he says in verse 22. Many will say to me, who's the many? It's the group that's adamant that Jesus is their Lord. Not the Muslims and not the Buddhists and not the atheists. Many who are adamant, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name and in Your name cast out demons and in Your name perform many miracles and I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. It's my prayer that nobody in this room would ever hear that. So if you're concerned about the state of your soul, if you're concerned about your unfaithfulness, to Christ, your lawlessness, your lack of desire to carry out the Great Commission. If if the flesh is ruining your life and running your life, come and talk with me. Come and talk with Pastor Oliver, some of the other men here. There are many men here, I'm certain I know, that can open up God's word and show you how to live a fruitful, abundant life for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, all we can do is come and confess because the model has been held up for us, and that is the Apostle Paul, to live as Christ. None of us live for Christ as we ought. Father, I pray that as the conviction is felt, that You would grant the repentance that accompanies salvation both to believers and to those who've never repented for the first time. And Father, I pray that as we consider Paul to live as Christ and to die as gain, I pray that we would consider the Lord Jesus Christ, who's laid out for us in Philippians chapter 2, who was in the form of God. Only God can be in the form of God. The Son of God came down, as Philippians 2 tells us, he came down and he took on human flesh. And he humbled himself. He humbled himself to the point of death for us, sacrificing himself for rebels, sacrificing himself for enemies, for God haters, for lovers of pleasure and lovers of self, for the hard hearted, unforgiving, and bitter. He did that for us. He is our example. And as the Apostle Paul looked to him, he said to live is Christ and yes, to die is gain. Father, would you convict us so that we can say those same things, not with our lips, but with our lives. Father, we want our lives to reflect those realities and we depend upon you. Father, we depend upon you working in us by the power of your spirit and for the glory of your son to help us put to death the deeds of the flesh. Father, would You set Your Son before us so that beholding Him in these pages of Scripture, we will be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we would be changed from one degree of glory to the next, and that we would truly look like Jesus, the one who was hated and murdered. Father, help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.